This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to share a review from Apple Podcasts with you. Zaid said, great interviews, really lovely interviews chronicling the many and varied ways people break into publishing. Thank you so much, Zaid, for your review and for reaching out. Hey, listeners, I just wanted to apologize for my sound quality in today's interview. The recording software recorded with the wrong mic, and so it sounds less clear than it usually does. I, I think I had started off believing in myself, but you know, after you get like a thousand rejections, you kind of wonder, you know, like maybe this isn't, isn't for me. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I hope you're enjoying the stories authors are sharing with you. If you are, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Podchaser, or Audible, or sharing the episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. Today, we're going to be talking to young adult and adult contemporary author Suzanne Park. Suzanne Park is a Korean-American author who was born and raised in Tennessee. In her former life as a stand-up comedian, Suzanne appeared on BET, was the winner of the Seattle Sierra Mist Comedy Competition, and was a semi-finalist in NBC's Stand Up for Diversity Showcase. So please welcome Suzanne. Hello. Hello. Nice to talk with you, chat with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you could come on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. We're going to start by going kind of all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And how long did it take before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? My journey was very windy, so I don't know how many hours you have for this book. <laughs> You'll have the extended version. I'll try to condense it to some degree. Out of college, I had wanted to become a humor writer. I just knew that that was something that I was passionate about, but I didn't actually know what that looked like or what that meant. Um, because at the time, when I graduated, there were like online zines and stuff like that. And there was, you know, of course, sh TV shows you could be a screenwriter, but I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. So I did my trusty Google search and I looked up Korean American humor writers and came across like the top search was a stand up comic that was actually in the same city I was living in. So I reached out to her and that was probably one of the most uh, influential people in my life. And she has no idea about that. But <laughs> I reached out to her and I said, hey, would you like to meet up for a drink or coffee or something? I'd like to hear about your professional background. And it turned out she, her humor writing was actually her doing stand-up comedy. And that's what she meant by that. Because when I chatted with her, I said, oh, what, what kind of writing do you do? And she said, oh, I write jokes. And I was like, okay, but, uh, and then what else do you do? She said, oh, I, I'm a stand-up comic. And it was just like all these words that were just basically around her doing stand-up. And I, I just was like, well, that's interesting. I had no idea that's what, you know, humor writing could be. And then right after we chatted, she said, oh, I have to run to a show. Do you want to come with me? We're across the street from this comedy club. 
And again, I was not expecting any of this and I had nothing better to do. So I decided to go with her. She performed, did her short set and watching her tell Asian American stories, you know, kind of with a rounded off with jokes and people laughing and whatever. I just was like, hey, maybe I could do that. And so I ended up doing stand up for 10 years or so. And Mm. at some point I realized it was after um, I had done a lot of these gigs where I was like going to a casinos and, and performing and I went to a retirement center and performing. These are the paid gigs that you get when you're a stand up comic. And I remember thinking, I don't know if this is what I was thinking when I wanted to be a humor writer. So I had to really take a step back and think about what I wanted to do in life. And that's when I started taking some classes and um, was taking humor writing classes and took, you know, personal essay classes and eventually ended up deciding that I wanted to do um, to be a writer, a published writer. And the first thing that I wrote was a collection of personal essays. And I went ahead and queried that and I got a ton of rejections, um, but a lot of positive feedback. And Sometimes the rejections can be disheartening, but sometimes uh, agents are nice and they actually add more commentary than they need to. And in this case, a lot well, we had a lot of I had a lot of people be encouraging and say like, "Oh, there's something here, but you know, it's just not for me or whatever." But there was one agent that kind of went above and beyond, and she had said that memoirs and personal essays are sort of passe now. Like at the time when I was querying them you know, David Sedaris and Augustine Burroughs, all those, those folks had already had a bunch of essays out. And she had said it was sort of, by the time we would sell this, it would not be a popular thing. Uh, And then on top of that, uh, the only way to really get it published, a memoir or personal essays now would be uh, if you were famous. So she's like, you know, that's my feedback. And I was like, well, okay, Um, that's not good news. (laughs) But then she did add at the very end, like you could, um, some of these stories I could see being fictionalized and turned into novels. Have you thought about that? And all that feedback was really helpful because it um, either meant I could try to publish what I had, but be fam- try to figure out how to be famous first or, um, uh, or fictionalize some of the things that I had written. And I hadn't even thought of that, to be honest. I was thinking I just need to write what I know. And that's what you are told. And I thought that would be through personal essay form. So um, that's how I ended up writing my first manuscript was my first novel was just trying to get that on paper. And it was similar to my life, not exactly the same character, but I um, wrote about a Asian American female working in the advertising industry. And that is the book that I ended up using to enter in Pitch Wars, which you're familiar with. Uh, It's a mentorship program where if you're selected, you're mentor or mentors, in my case, I had two of them, they will kind of take apart your manuscript and help you uh, reshape it and polish it so that when it's at when the mentorship is over, and there's an agent round at the end, you have a pitch, uh, sometimes a synopsis, and then you have your manuscript ready to go. And that's the program that helped me get my first my agent current agent. And then after you got your agent, did you get a book deal in that first book? No, <laughs> I did not. And it's like, again, how many hours do you have? Uh, 
my road to publication was so bumpy. And it's so funny because I have friends that are, you know, they're cheerleaders along the way. And even them looking back now, they're like, wow, you really had a really tough go at it. (laughs) It's the worst story I've ever heard. In some ways, it was very lucky. Like, I will say I had a lot of blessings along the way, if you will. When I entered Pitch Wars, I was just lucky because the mentors that pick me don't normally pick contemporary women's fiction. And um, that was sort of their secondary category choice, but they really took to my voice. Thank goodness. The other lucky thing is, is I got an agent pretty quickly from Pitch Wars. And I thought that was like, oh, this is this is all promising. And then it all fell apart after that. <laughs> so I think like in the end, I always tell writers, uh, especially ones that aren't published or haven't gotten an agent is, You hear that everybody's journey is different, but I really did live that where I had some really fast moments and then really slow, bumpy moments too. It really is not a straight line to get to where you need to go. So when I got my agent, we had one round of revisions and then we sent the uh, manuscript off and we got all the way to acquisitions and that did not sell. And I was like, oh, I'm so disheartened. But I had already started writing my second book. So I was feeling like, okay, well, if this doesn't get picked up, then it was kind of a sequel at the time. It changed a lot. That second book, I we ended up putting on a submission about a year after the first one didn't sell. And that one didn't sell either. <laughs> <laughs> it also went to acquisitions. I think it went twice, but it was it was one of those things where you, you know, uh, for those who don't know, acquisitions is that last stage where, an editor's champion, championing your book uh, to be sold within the editorial group. And it kind of just needs to pass different stakeholders and, to get it through. And for whatever reason, uh, that book also didn't sell. So one of the reasons why I picked my agent was because he represented different age groups and different genres. So I knew, uh, although I loved writing women's fiction, contemporary women's fiction and romantic comedies, that I would like to explore other age groups. So we kind of went through some options for me, career options, and we decided that young adult might be another area that I could um, focus on. And so my third manuscript I wrote, it was more of a dramedy. And it was one of those books that maybe will get written, you know, maybe it'll get published one day, but it was a little bit different in tone. And that also didn't sell. Um, <laughs> that also went to acquisitions. <laughs> And then when I got that call, that was one of those, oh man, I thought it was like third time's a charm, but it's like three strikes and you're out. That was how it actually turned out. And I was thinking, gosh, this is just not going to happen. So the fourth book that I was, that I wrote, The Perfect Escape is that book. um, And that's the book that I debuted with. That one, I actually wrote parts of it in a workshop. So I didn't actually have the whole idea figured out. I just was... Somehow by bad timing, I had a workshop in place and I didn't want to workshop the book that was already on submission. So I was kind of stuck where I had to either really come up with stuff on the fly or I actually had to, you know, just use old material. And I figure, well, why not? Why not write something new? The whole theme of that workshop was having heroic characters that are memorable and just having a story that's larger than life. And I was like okay, I I can try to write to this. But when you don't have a workshop that is like, here's how to write a beginning and middle and end. And it's just like, why don't you show a scene where your character is heroic or whatever it is? I was like, I have no idea. It could be 
it's not the beginning at the of the book. It'd probably be somewhere in the middle. So I actually wrote that book all out of order because of this class. Uh, we ended up with five or six scenes and they were all just piecemeal sections of the book. But then putting them together, I could see where this book could go. And that was the book that I debuted with. And because I had pieces of it already written, I kind of knew how that book was going to go, like how the story, the storyline I wanted, even though it was written out of order. And so that one was actually pretty quick to write. It was four or five months to actually draft once I had just a few scenes in place. And then that book sold pretty quickly. And so it was a very different change from all of the other long drawn out acquisition and submission processes. It was surprising too, because it felt like whiplash because everything else was so slow. And then this one was super fast. So when that book went to acquisitions, were you like, oh, here we go again? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, because my agent would pass along feedback because I'd ask them him to positive or negative feedback. So I knew what kinds of rejections I could get and what kinds of accolades that that come with moving along uh, the chain. Yeah, so I had actually gotten an email from my agent who had told me that an editor was interested. And then he was kind of really excited about her. We hadn't submitted to her before because she had just moved um, to a different imprint. Her words were really positive And she said, okay, we're going to take it to acquisitions next week. And honestly, I just kind of was like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Where I wasn't as stressed out about it. And I also kind of had a better feeling about this book for some reason. I just knew there was something about it that was different. So if it got rejected, it wasn't going to be for the same reasons as some some other books that I had written. It would have to be completely different reasons. Uh, Because this one was more of a, it was a rom-com, but it was more like of an adventure rom-com. And there was a lot going on. It was fast paced. So it was different than the dramedy I had just written, which was a little bit slower and more introspective and character driven. So again, I just knew at least the feedback would be different. But when she wrote back that a week later and said, oh, we have an offer. The funniest thing was, of course, my agent is just thrilled when he found that out. But he also heard it at like 9 a.m. his time. East Coast time, which is 6 a.m. my time. And he had to decide what to do with this information. So he went to Twitter and said, like, I have great news for one of my clients. Should I wake her up? And I've never seen his tweets blow up and me be part of it. And it was so much commentary. It was hilarious. And I actually saved like a picture of it because there were so many people and there was all types of responses from, of course, you should tell her or him or her because it's so such good news and it's exciting to, why are you even on Twitter? Like, how dare you? Like, <laughs> you should be calling her. It was just like all all types of responses. He did message me so that I, when I just kind of happened to have woken up earlier that day uh, and then I saw it and then I knew it had to be some positive news because he wouldn't call me that early for, with bad news. <laughs> I hope not. so how long did that take like how long was it between for example you getting chosen for pitch wars to you signing your first book contract that was almost exactly three years wow when i was in pitch wars and had gotten an agent and had gone on submission that first time i thought there was just this linear process on how things go (laughs) I was like, this is first step. This is second step, third step four. I just thought that that's how it went. And all of us were sort of at the beginning in lockstep kind of moving in one direction. 
it's funny if I look back now and, you know, polled everybody and where they are, they would be all over the place in their journey. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that at the time. I was a little naive about it. I think that three years was an interesting learning experience because I realized it wasn't linear uh, and it wasn't sort of step one, step two, step three, step four in this like orderly fashion. Three years to some people is a long time, but I've talked to other authors and it's actually, you know, kind of like, oh, I, you know, it took me seven years to finally sell a book or um, I, you know, did a couple of other things like wrote articles and submitted to journals. And then I finally sold a novel. And so again, everybody's past different, but again, I had friends that were out the gate selling books right out of pitch wars immediately, maybe within a month of having an agent. And then here I was, you know, getting an agent on the early side and then not selling until three years later. Yeah. Um, That's why I'm glad you're sharing the stories because we do a lot at pitch wars to try to combat the image, but a lot of people think, I got into pitch wars, I'm golden, I'm going to be the next Tomi Arayami, you know, mm-hmm. and people have a wide variety of experiences after pitch wars. Yeah, and I'm glad I have opportunities like this to kind of explain the journey, because if you look at face value of how last year and this year went, minus the pandemic part, I have two books in two contract, two, two book contracts, and they're in the happening in the same year. So I ended up having two books come out last year and two books coming out this year. And to anybody else that looks like I hit, you know, oh, wow, all of her hard work, all, you know, obviously this is like a success story. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) you should have seen me those miserable three years, um, (laughs) those rejections. And I do have like all of them saved over in a file. Uh, I don't call them rejections. I just say like feedback or something is what it's called. (laughs) Your key to success there was though that you kept writing books. Yes. You, you know, got a contract on the fourth book your agent shopped, which was, if I'm counting correctly, the fifth book that you wrote. Yes. So once you decided that you wanted to be a published author, how did you go about learning how the publishing industry works, like how to query and how to do everything like that? I had done a lot of internet research and I think there was a few books that I don't have anymore. You know, they were titled like how to get published and there were pretty popular nonfiction books that were like almost like Bibles of the publishing industry. I don't know if they're still around or if they're just as popular, but I use that actually probably those kind of thick tomes as my (laughs) original guide uh, when I was querying the first time. Uh, It's funny because the when you're querying personal essays, although the querying process is the same and you are looking for agents, the types of agents that take memoirs and personal essays are totally different than the fiction ones. So it wasn't like I could learn completely from that and just kind of transfer that knowledge over to fiction. I had to learn how to do that all over again. Yeah, it was mostly internet research and reading these gigantic books. But then I also had met writer friends along the way And in Pitch Wars, none of us knew what we were doing. So we were sharing things in real time. And that was super helpful, too, because it was a pretty giving and sharing type of community. I look back and I think I've really met some really great friends that are still friends today that I, you know, I just cherish those relationships. And also my mentors in Pitch Wars, co-mentors, Sarah Henning and Kelly Garrett, they were just I mean, I talk to them all the time. (laughs) Everything from, you know, how does this look, you know, for because of course they're helping with the queries and stuff. But even when I was getting agent offers and then later on 
talking to agent, I mean, editors, that was helpful too, to kind of go back to them and say, Hey, um, no, I know technically our mentorship ended, but you know, you did sign up for a lifetime mentorship, right? So they've, they've throughout my whole career have been really great to chat with because they always give great advice. Can you go ahead and read your successful query letter for us? Dear, (laughs) sorry, I have dear insert agent name. (laughs) Dear insert agent name. Julia Jung just can't take it anymore. As her millennial peers hit hit their strides in life, unlucky at life, Julia has completely stalled out. She's ostracized at her fancy advertising agency for accidentally causing an office dog ban, gets dumped by her boyfriend via text message, and her status-obsessed parents have reached peak nag about both the LSAT, no dad, not taking it, and finding a proper Korean-American husband, preferably a doctor naturally before she becomes an old maid. Overwhelmed by life's setbacks, Julia makes a spontaneous move from New York City to Seattle to get a fresh start in a new city where she has zero baggage. She expects her new life to be a movie montage of falling in love with her new city, new job, and new lease on life. Instead, she gets the straight-to-cable version, an apartment near a crack park slash dog park, zero friends, the Seattle freeze is real, and a steady diet of applesauce and Costco ramen. Oh, and the worst job search known to man. In this coming-of-age story that's one half master of none and one half Bridget Jones, Julia learns how to navigate adulthood and comes to terms with her dysfunctional family, her weird love life, and her own self-sabotage. My Name Is Not Julie is a humorous women's fiction complete at 76,000 words. I'm a Korean-American comedian who has appeared on BET, and I graduated from Columbia University and received an MBA from UCLA. I would love to give readers around the world a glimpse of what it's like to be a second-generation Asian-American. As per your instructions, I'm including my full manuscript for your review. That sounds so fun. <laughs> Thank you. And did that book ever get published? No, that was the first one that got close. Yeah. I want to read it, though. <laughs> but the funny thing is, my second book, Loathe at First Sight, this was kind of like a sequel uh, to that book. So one day, maybe I'll either publish excerpts from this or maybe possibly try to reissue it or something because I do think it would be nice to know her backstory. Yeah. So how has your experience been since sending that first book contract? Especially let us know if there were any surprises along the way. So the big surprise after signing the first book contract for The Perfect Escape and Untitled Book Two uh, was that three months later, I would end up selling my second manuscript that I had written by I'd rewritten it and I reconceptualized it so that it was a rom-com versus a workplace comedy. And that sold pretty quickly once it went back on submission. So I guess one of the things I like to tell people is once you shelve something, it might still come back. And I did like make it come back to life and uh, try to sell it. And it did. So the surprise was after selling The Perfect Escape, the second book that I had written sold right after that. And then the contracts got signed three months apart, but the actual offers came in one month apart. And it was just a complete, uh, how am I allowed to curse? (laughs) It was a complete circus for a long time, just juggling, like just keeping the language straight. And the publishers are very different. The contracts are written, although the content was the same, they're just structured differently. 
And so that was the contract process and going back and forth and talking to editors about their editorial letters. Luckily, somehow by some miracle, all of my books have just been staggered in such a way that it's when I turn in one thing within that week, that next deliverable will land in my inbox just by pure luck, not by strategy. Mm -hmm. So somehow I've been able to do this sequence where I've been able to release the books as they have come out and not completely fallen apart and cried in fetal position on the floor. (laughs) But I've had to really master time management. But I did not expect this at all, for sure, especially after the, you know, the crazy journey I had going up to the point of trying to sell my fourth book, or arguably fifth book. And at that time, I was you know, cleaning up my resume, ready to go back to work and say, like, I'm done. I I don't think I can write any more unsold books anymore. So I think the biggest surprise was that you can continuously be surprised by what happens in publishing. Because there were different publishers, it's not like they were talking to each other. So I end up being and my agent uh, end up being the people who have to juggle things and make sure on my end that things look like they're doable. Yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) We are getting into the quick round. I call it author DNA. It has nothing to do with actual DNA, just kind of classifications that we put authors in sometimes. Are you more of a pantser or a plotter? I am a hybrid, but I'm more pantser than plotter. What is that term? (laughs) Pantsler? I don't know. Uh, Panter. I'm a heavy pantser. I don't know, but I am, I would say like 75% pantser and 25% plotter. Every time someone tells me they're hybrid and then they tell me their process, me as like a pure pantser is like, no, you're a plotter. <laughs> I think any amount of I know. plotting is plotting. I like when people claim they're not plotters to any degree, but then they wor- mention the word spreadsheet and they're like, yeah. okay. <laughs> What are you talking about? Like, how how can you fire up a spreadsheet and not be any, like, not lean plotter? Like, I don't understand. What do you, like, you're not drawing, like, freehand in that Excel sheet. Like, come on. In your first drafts, do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Definitely underwriter. And I think that might be because of my background in stand-up comedy. Your Your goal is to have as few words as possible to get the point across. And I think... Since then, I've just pared down words and stripped everything down to just really getting a very clean beginning, middle, end of a joke. And so that has, I don't know if it's impaired me, but it's definitely caused me a lot of strife and grief at the tail end of the drafting process when I have to add like 20,000 words to every draft I end up doing um, in the revision. That makes sense. Do you tend to write better in the morning or at night? I used to be a night night writer. That sounds funny. I stopped asking the question a certain way to prevent myself from saying night writer. Yes. (laughs) I am a night writer. I actually know uh, the guy that does the night writer wiki. Oh, (laughs) random. Family friend. Just interesting tidbit about my life. But anyway, so yes, we know night writer well in this household. But um, I used to write at night, uh, mainly because I had a full-time job I was also parenting and then didn't have any time during the day. So when everybody went to sleep, including my husband, nobody's bothering me. I would open my laptop and start typing. And that was it from 
9.30 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. And there were a few friends of mine that would I would pull in to do these nighttime sprints. And that was actually a very fun time. That was like right after Pitch Wars. Now with how things are going with um, just having shelter at home and then uh, just having my daughter home, everything just got all jumbled up. But right now I just, uh, I'm able to write during the day. I think the most productive I have been was when I was nighttime sprinting. When you start a new book, do you usually start with character or plot or concept or something else first? Definitely the concept. And again, this goes back to the stand-up. I think my jokes came from a premise, just this funny observation or an idea or a hint of something funny and then turning it into some bigger idea and bigger concept. And I think that's just how my brain works now. So I think of a premise, think of how to make it the most absurd as possible. And then uh, layer in the characterization and, and plot. Do you prefer coffee or tea? It depends on the mood. In general, I like iced coffee. I know some people aren't a big fan and they don't count that as coffee. I do. But I take tea hot or cold. And I, I, you know, if I'm feeling, you know, like I need something warm, it's tea. But I think if I need, it's like a summer day and or I just feel like a treat, I do iced coffee. So all of the above. (laughs) Yes. When you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Definitely silence. I'm not a person who can listen to music when I write. I've tried because I thought that that's what writers do. That again, this is back when I was trying to figure out how to be a writer. I just, you know, people have Spotify playlists and all that. I tried to do all that, but I end up like listening to the music and trying to figure out the lyrics or whatever and then just get distracted. And, but when I have silence, it's just, I can just almost hear the thoughts in my own head and am able to focus better. When it comes to writing the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? It depends if I'm on contract or not. (laughs) (laughs) Lately, the last year is definitely get it down. And then when the revision, try to mostly get it right. But when I was drafting pre all of this, I ended up doing probably the latter where I was trying to edit as I went. And I just wrote a little bit slower, but it was a cleaner draft. Right now, it's hilariously just getting it down where I'm just writing words that may not even make sense, but I know I can clean it up later. What tools or software do you use to draft? Just Microsoft Word and Google Docs. So Google Docs, I shared ideas with my agent on one of the books I was proposing recently. And he added commentary and it was just like a nice way to talk about and get his feedback on books really quickly. So we started using that kind of sharing. But before then, it was just pure Microsoft Word. And that was just for drafting. But now my ideas live on Google Docs. And occasionally I ping him and ask him to take a look at things. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Definitely revising. I thought I used to like drafting more, but I I think I'm just more of a reviser. I like being able to refine things. Okay, so in my revision process, I don't like having to draft that extra 10 to 20,000 new words (laughs) because I underwrite. But when it actually comes to the revision process, maybe the third round of revision, I really like that I can uh, streamline the story and able to be able to really see where I was trying to go and know where to take the story. And then sometimes 
along the way, I think of new or even better ideas and I'm able to slot those in or shuffle things around and actually make the story stronger. And I always feel like that's a big win when you can do that, when you're actually realizing and coming up with ideas in the second or third round of revisions. So you mentioned this for Perfect Escape, but in general, do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Definitely sequential order. That book was so different in so many ways. And final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? I was just thinking about this question today, just the question of whether I am one or the other. And the conclusion I came up with on my long car drive was that I'm an introvert in most cases, but I'm an extrovert among introverts if that makes any sense. So among a peer of introverts, I'm usually the loudest and most rambunctious of the introverts because uh, a lot of my friends actually are introverts, but they see me as extroverted, which is funny to me because when I'm actually in a big crowd compared to the general population, I'm definitely considered an introvert. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. So we're going to talk about that second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey? And were they realized or did you overcome them or how did they shake out? I think I've heard other authors come here and tell you that the fear of rejection was one of the biggest qualms. I completely agree with that, especially because I had so many rejections. (laughs) It was so brutal. Um, And then I actually got numb and desensitized, which is also kind of messed up. But I really went through, I mean, I think I had like on the upward bounce of hundreds, if you add in agent rejections adding in that first book that didn't go anywhere because it was a book of essays. I mean, that's just like, I I mean, it might even be a thousand rejections if you add all that up. So it's been a long uh, process for me. So I think, especially at the beginning was the fear rejection. And then over time, just feeling like rejection was normal to a point where, you know, I just felt like nothing was ever going to go anywhere. It was so disheartening. Another thing was... I just didn't know. And maybe this is just like as an adult, I find it harder to make new friends. And the idea that I would have to network or meet or whatever it is with a new group of people in a different industry that I had no experience in, how was I going to do that? And that kind of had its own sort of uh, (laughs) gave me heart palpitations in other ways where I'm thinking like, how do you meet other writers? And how do you talk to authors in public or whatever it is? And that always gave me a small sense of anxiety. But over time, I've just been able to meet people and it's been more organic than I realized. But it, it, was, uh, it was just that fear of starting a brand new life all over again and having to make friends. And I was like, oh, no, this is how do people do this? <laughs> people talk about have to come on the show and talk about not reading reviews. And I think that is hard at first. But then you quickly realize that that really is best for you. I have been really good at, at least at the beginning, just to make sure things are getting into people's hands. I usually look at reviews just to say like, okay, when did it start? When did my arcs get released? And then make sure that sort of the numbers make sense to me on how people are reviewing wherever they're posting reviews. And then seeing like making sure that the publisher is is doing what they promised. And then there's a point where when you get that first, you know, bad review where you're like, oh, that hurt. And then you get another one. You're like, okay, now I remember what you're supposed (laughs) to do. So after maybe 
I got my first or second, you know, lukewarm even review of these last two books, I stopped looking at them. The other thing that I was worried about was the category I write in, which is contemporary humorous women's fiction or humorous contemporary fiction. That category keeps sort of changing and morphing into different things. So when it was popular back in the early 2000s, it was called Chiclet. And then it changed to rom-com and then sort of in between, it was kind of other things, but it wasn't really popular at the time, but now it sort of had its resurgence. And I was just wondering if I would be able to be, you know, write what I wanted to write and it be something that would get published. So now we're going to talk about the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique? I do have a word count goal uh, with every book and I try to hit it. I had not really known that I was going to be driven that way by word count, but when I was working full-time, I actually negotiated with my workplace to work part-time on Take Fridays Off. And that was sort of a trial run to see if I could actually be a full-time writer to some degree where I would have suddenly a full work day to do whatever I wanted when it came to writing And it was a test for three months to see if I could actually write in the nine to five timeframe. And so I kind of now know what my throughput is. So it's sort of taking it and operationalizing it and then kind of analyzing and realizing like that's actually kind of a weird quirk where I can actually know what my throughput is and then decide how much my word count needs to be given my new deadlines and whatever. And so that's how I get to my thousand words a day. It's my current book because of that. When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? I thought I would give myself those three books and then three strikes and you're out. And then I was like, why am I doing this? This is so brutal and painful. At some point when I turned in The Perfect Escape, I was, as I mentioned before, I was working on my resume trying to clean it up because I was basically going to go back to work. And I had really good friends that said, you know, you really need to see this one through and then just keep going because I, they believed in me. I I think I had started off believing in myself, but after you get like a thousand rejections, you kind of wonder, you know, like maybe this isn't, isn't for me, but it really was my peer group, my writer peer group that kind of kept me going and um, pep talking and, One was like, you cannot work on your resume. You need to keep writing. And, you know, they were just really um, helping me out both emotionally, but also just telling me, you know, you got this. And I think that really helps to have a support group around you because you have your highs and lows and they also celebrate your wins. Do you feel like you made any mistakes along the way that you would like to warn listeners about so they don't make the same ones? I think the biggest mistake really was thinking that the path to publication was linear and systematic and had steps that were even, (laughs) if you will. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? It doesn't look the same for two people, any two people. You might have people that start off the same, but that later on their paths will diverge. 
um, whether they switch publishers or switch agents or something, it's bound to be different. So no two uh, writers and authors' journeys are identical. I, I did think also that publishing was a meritocracy, a pure meritocracy, only because it was so accessible from just the ability that anybody can query an agent. In that sense, I was like, wow, this seems so fair. <laughs> and then realized that there's so much behind that. There's still things that are happening on the publisher side and also the market that you cannot control. So things will affect what you think are is meritocracy. I, I think I mistook that for accessibility. And then that also has its own it's also loaded in in that it is accessible to some degree, but not even and fair for everybody equally. I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. Who are some of the people or organizations that helped you along the way? Oh my gosh, I should just pull a book off of this shelf. <laughs> I would say, of course, my agent, uh, he's been by me since the offer day of pitch wars. And so I still haven't, I actually just talked to him today about some contract thing. He's been a huge champion. And so I'm glad that he's by my side. And what's his name? Oh, Brent Taylor. He's a Triada US. I would definitely think my editors are people that I acknowledge. And sometimes I almost forget because they're just so just part of an extension of the book. Eliza Swift over at Sourcebooks and Carrie Farron over at William Morrow slash Avon slash Voyager. She's, uh, she's been great and really enjoys my workplace comedies that are a little bit harder hitting in terms of themes. I definitely try to tackle these bigger issues and she appreciates that and really wants to help me do that. And they both understand my sense of humor, which is actually probably the most important thing. I'm like, thank goodness. And then the people who support them and work in the publishing groups too, like their editorial assistants. Then of course the marketing and people who make the covers. I just, salespeople, there's just a huge team. I would also definitely think that my mentors uh, from Pitch Wars, who still hear from me, unfortunately, they're really the ones that encourage me from the beginning and, and warn me as well. Like this is going to be hard. So once you're done with Pitch Wars, it's just going to continue to be hard. So no, we're here for you, but also like it's tough out there. And they were all about tough love. And I think that really helped at least brace me for, for what was to come. I have a huge number of friends that are writing um, buddies and not that they're all writing buddies, but meaning like they write and sprint with me, but I have different like levels, but some of them are my friends who I can tell personal stuff to, and they know what's going on. And then you, I have my friends that are sprinting buddies and people who are just in the um, different debut groups that I've been in. And they've been really supportive and helpful. And then I've just met people along the way that have been wonderful champions, especially when, you know, I've had to debut in, in the pandemic and now have to release two more books in the pandemic. And some of these established authors have just been so kind and generous with their time, whether they're reading the book or promoting it on social media or just talking about it in like a, you know, a panel or something. Sandia Menon and Emily Henry recently were just super kind to me. And I was like, wow, you know, there is, there are so many nice people in this industry. And it really just makes me feel like 
you know, I'm in the right place that I need to be. I've gotten to know a lot of bookstagrammers and um, people who are in the book community that are active on bookstagram. And they have been huge support during the debut year of last year, where it's just, I had a release perfect escape in April, which was right after the shelter in place orders came into play. And Amazon wasn't shipping books at the time because they were not deemed essential. So nobody could get my book, literally. Like <laughs> it was the weirdest times. There's no bookstores open. Amazon wasn't shipping. And then when they did ship, it was three or four weeks later sometimes. And it was just a strange time. And during this time, these bookstagrammers who are going through their own, you know, things during this pandemic were actively posting about debut books. And I just you know, I'm so thankful for them because they were just steer, still cheerleading during that time. It was just such a tough time. And I just definitely remember that. Before you go, can you tell us about your latest release? Sure. Sunny Song just came out in in June. And it's about a Korean-American teenager who's a social media influencer. She's based in LA. And she is sent to digital detox camp in Iowa. And so the whole story is about her having to be unplugged and figure out how to connect with people when she's forced to disconnect. That sounds really good. It was a book I had to write during quarantine. And so I had to, I wanted to write a book that was, was a comfort write. And so that book, and So We Meet Again, which is releasing August 3rd, those books were books that I had actually changed a little bit of the concept just so that it would be a little bit more easy and a little bit more lighthearted because I wanted it to be a super comfort read that people just wanted to like feel warm and squishy at the end. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Suzanne's query in the show notes along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review, tell your friends, or share this episode on social media. And if you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. If you're enjoying this show, please check out Pub Talk Live. Pub Talk Live is a publishing talk show broadcasting live to YouTube every second and fourth Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, but it is also syndicated as a podcast. Agent Chat Live is a spinoff of Pub Talk Live that features casual chats with literary agents with the intention of helping writers get to know the agents a little bit better. Check out both on YouTube or the podcast app of your preference.